Section 1 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Feudalism, Its Frankish Birth, and English Development, 9th to 12th Century, by Williams Stubbs, Part 1. That social system, however varying, in different times and places, in which ownership of land is the basis of authority, is known in history as feudalism. From the time of Clovis, the Frankish king, who died in A.D. 511, the progress of the Franks in civilization was slow, and for more than two centuries they spent their energies mainly in useless wars. But Charles Martel and his son Pepin the Short, the latter dying in 768, built up a kingdom which Charlemagne erected into a powerful empire. Under the predecessors of Charlemagne, the beginnings of feudalism, which are very obscure, may be said to vaguely appear. Charles Martel had to buy the services of his nobles by granting them lands, and although he and Pepin strengthened the royal power, which Charlemagne still further increased, under the weak rulers who followed them, the forces of the incipient feudalism again became active and the state was divided into petty countships and dukedoms, almost independent of the king. The gift of land by the king in return for feudal services was called a feudal grant, and the land so given was termed a feud, or fief. In the course of time, fiefs became hereditary. Lands were also sometimes usurped or otherwise obtained by subjects, who thereby became feudal lords. By a process called sub-infeudation, lands were granted in parcels to other men by those who received them from the king or otherwise, and by these lower landholders to others again. And as the first recipient became the vassal of the king, and the suzerain of the man who held next below him, there was created a regular descending scale of such vassalage and suzerainty in which each man's allegiance was directly due to his feudal lord, and not to the king himself. From the king down to the lowest landholder, all were bound by obligation of service and defense. The lord to protect his vassal, the vassal to do service to his lord. These are the essential features of the social system which, from its early growth under the later Carlovingians in the ninth century, spread over Europe and reached its highest development in the twelfth century. At a time midway between these periods, it was carried by the Norman conquest into England. The history of the system of distinctly Frankish origin, a knowledge of which is absolutely essential to a proper understanding of history and the evolution of our present social system, is told by Stubbs with that discernment and thoroughness of analysis which have given him his rank as one of the few masterly writers in this field. Feudalism has grown up from two great sources, the beneficium and the practice of commendation, and had been specially fostered on Gallic soil by the existence of a subject population which admitted of any amount of extension in the methods of dependence. The beneficiary system originated partly in gifts of land made by the kings out of their own estates to their kinsmen and servants, with a special undertaking to be faithful, partly in the surrender by landowners of their estates to churches or powerful men, to be received back again and held by them as tenants for rent or service. By the latter arrangement, the weaker man obtained the protection of the stronger, and he who felt himself insecure placed his title under the defense of the church. By the practice of commendation, on the other hand, the inferior put himself under the personal care of a lord, but without altering his title or divesting himself of his right to his estate. 
he became a vassal and did homage the placing of his hands between those of his lord was the typical act by which the connection was formed and the oath of fealty was taken at the same time the union of the beneficiary tie with that of commendation completed the idea of feudal obligation the twofold engagement that of the lord to defend and that of the vassal to be faithful a third ingredient was supplied by the grants of immunity by which in the frank empire as in england the possession of land was united with the right of judicature the dwellers on the feudal property were placed under the tribunal of the lord and the rights which had belonged to the nation or to its chosen head were devolved upon the receiver of the fief the rapid spread of the system thus originated and the assimilation of all other tenures to it may be regarded as the work of the tenth century but as early as a d eight seventy seven charles the bald recognized the hereditary character of all benefices and from that year the growth of strictly feudal jurisprudence may be held to date the system testifies to the country and causes of its birth the beneficium is partly of roman partly of german origin in the roman system the usufruct the occupation of land belonging to another person involved no diminution of status in the germanic system he who tilled land that was not his own was imperfectly free the reduction of a large roman population to dependence placed the two classes on a level and conduced to the wide extension of the institution commendation on the other hand may have had a gallic or celtic origin and an analogy only with the roman clientship the german comitatus which seems to have ultimately merged its existence in one or other of these developments is of course to be carefully distinguished in its origin from them the tie of the benefice or of commendation could be formed between any two persons whatever none but the king could have intrusions but the comitatus of anglo-saxon history preserved a more distinct existence and this perhaps was one of the causes that distinguished the later anglo-saxon system most definitely from the feudalism of the frank empire the process by which the machinery of government became feudalized although rapid was gradual the weakness of the carlovingian kings and emperors gave room for the speedy development of disruptive tendencies in a territory so extensive and so little consolidated the duchies and counties of the eighth and ninth centuries were still official magistracies the holders of which discharged the functions of imperial judges or generals such officers were of course men whom the king could trust in most cases franks courtiers or kinsmen who at an earlier date would have been comites or antricians and who were provided for by feudal benefices the official magistracy had in itself the tendency to become hereditary and when the benefice was recognized as heritable the provincial governorship became so too but the provincial governor had many opportunities of improving his position especially if he could identify himself with the manners and aspirations of the people he ruled by marriage or inheritance he might accumulate in his family not only the old allodial estates which especially on german soil still continued to subsist but the traditions and local loyalties which were connected with the possession of them so in a few years the frank magistrate could unite in his own person the beneficiary endowment the imperial deputation and the headship of the nation over which he presided and then it was only necessary for the central power to be a little weakened and the independence of duke or count was limited by his homage and fealty alone that is by obligations that depended on conscience only for their fulfillment it is in germany that the disruptive tendency most distinctly takes the political form saxony and bavaria assert their national independence under swabian and saxon dukes who have identified the interests of their subjects with their own in france 
where the ancient tribal divisions had been long obsolete and where the existence of the allied involved little or no feeling of loyalty the process was simpler still the provincial rulers aimed at practical rather than political sovereignty the people were too weak to have any aspirations at all the disruption was due more to the abeyance of central attraction than to any centrifugal force existing in the provinces but the result was the same feudal government a graduated system of jurisdiction based on land tenure in which every lord judged taxed and commanded the class next below him of which abject slavery formed the lowest and irresponsible tyranny the highest grade and private war private coinage private prisons took the place of the imperial institutions of government this was the social system which william the conqueror and his barons had been accustomed to see at work in france one part of it the feudal tenure of land was perhaps the only kind of tenure which they could understand the king was the original lord and every title issued immediately or immediately from him the other part the governmental system of feudalism was the point on which sooner or later the duke and his barons were sure to differ already the incompatibility of the system with the existence of the strong central power had been exemplified in normandy where the strength of the dukes had been tasked to maintain their hold on the castles and to enforce their own justice much more difficult would england be to retain in norman hands if the new king allowed himself to be fettered by the french system on the other hand the norman barons would fain rise a step in the social scale answering to that by which their duke had become a king and they aspired to the same independence which they had seen enjoyed by the counts of southern and eastern france nor was the aspiration on their part altogether unreasonable they had joined in the conquest rather as sharers in the great adventure than as mere vassals of the duke whose birth they despised as much as they feared his strength william however was wise and wary as well as strong while by the insensible process of custom or rather by the mere assumption that feudal tenure of land was the only lawful and reasonable one the frankish system of tenure was substituted for the anglo-saxon the organization of government on the same basis was not equally a matter of course the conqueror himself was too strong to suffer the, that organization to become formidable in his reign but neither the brutal force of william rufus nor the heavy and equal pressure of the government of henry i could extinguish the tendency toward it it was only after it had under stephen broken out into anarchy and plunged the whole nation in misery when the great houses founded by the barons of the conquest had suffered forfeiture or extinction when the normans had become englishmen under the legal and constitutional reforms of henry the second that the royal authority in close alliance with the nation was enabled to put an end to the evil william the conqueror claimed the crown of england as the chosen heir of edward the confessor it was a claim by which the english did not admit and of which the normans saw the fallacy but which he himself consistently maintained and did his best to justify in that claim he saw not only the justification of the conquest in the eyes of the church but his great safeguard against the jealous and aggressive host by whose aid he had realized it therefore immediately after the battle of hastings he proceeded to seek the national recognition of its validity he obtained it from the divided and dismayed witten with no great trouble and was crowned by the archbishop of york the most influential and patriotic among them binding himself by the constitutional promises of justice and good laws standing before the altar at westminster in the presence of the clergy and the people he promised with an oath that he would defend god's holy churches and their rulers that he would moreover rule the whole people subject to him with righteousness and royal providence would enact and hold fast right law and utterly forbid rapine and unrighteous judgments the form of election and acceptance was regularly observed 
and the legal position of the new king completed before he went forth to finish the conquest. Had it not been for this, the Norman host might have fairly claimed a division of land such as the Danes had made in the ninth century. But to the people who had recognized William, it was but just that the chance should be given them of retaining what was their own. Accordingly, when the lands of all those who had fought for Harold were confiscated, those who were willing to acknowledge William were allowed to redeem theirs, either paying money at once or giving hostages for the payment. That under this redemption lay the idea of a new title to the lands redeemed may be regarded as questionable. The feudal lawyer might take one view, and the plundered proprietor another. But if charters of confirmation or regrant were generally issued on the occasion to those who were willing to redeem, there can be no doubt that, as soon as the feudal law gained general acceptance, these would be regarded as conveying a feudal title. What to the English might be a mere payment, or fierdoit, or composition for a recognized defense, might to the Normans seem equivalent to forfeiture and restoration. But however this was, the process of confiscation and redistribution of lands under the new title began from the moment of the coronation. The next few years occupied in the reduction of western and northern England, added largely to the stock of divisible estates. The tyranny of Odo of Bayeux and William Fitzespern, which provoked attempts at rebellion in 1067, the stand made by the House of Godwin in Devonshire in 1068, the attempts of Mercia in Northumbria to shake off the Normans in 1069 and 1070, the last struggle for independence in 1071, in which Edwin and Morcar finally fell, the conspiracy of the Norman earls in 1074, in consequence of which Waltuff perished, all tended to the same result. After each effort, the royal hand was laid on more heavily. More and more land changed owners, and with the change of owners, the title changed. The complicated and unintelligible irregularities of the Anglo-Saxon tenures were exchanged for the simple and uniform feudal theory. The 1500 tenants-in-chief of Domesday Book took the place of the countless landowners of King Edward's time, and the loose, unsystematic arrangements which had grown up in the confusion of title, tenure, and jurisdiction were replaced by systematic custom. The change was effected without any legislative act, but simply by the process of transfer under circumstances in which simplicity and uniformity were an absolute necessity. It was not the change from allodial to feudal so much as from confusion to order. The actual amount of dispossession was no doubt greatest in the higher ranks. The smaller owners may to a large extent have remained in immediatized position in, on their estates. But even Domesday, with all its fullness and accuracy, cannot be supposed to enumerate all the changes of the twenty eventful years that followed the Battle of Hastings. It is enough for our purpose to ascertain that a universal assimilation of title followed the general changes of ownership. The King of Domesday is the supreme landlord. All the land of the nation, the old folkland, has become the king's, and all private land is held immediately or immediately from him. All holders are bound to their lords by homage and fealty, either actually demanded or understood to be demandable, in every case of transfer by inheritance or otherwise. The result of this process is partly legal and partly constitutional or political. The legal result is the introduction of an elaborate system of customs, tenures, rights, duties, profits, and jurisdictions. The constitutional result is the creation of several intermediate links between the body of the nation and the king, in the place of, or side by side with, the duty of allegiance. On the former of these points, we have very insufficient data, for we are quite in the dark as to the development of feudal law in Normandy before the invasion, and may be reasonably inclined to refer some at least of the peculiarities of English feudal law to the leaven of the system which it superseded. 
nor is it easy to reduce the organization described in Domesday to strict conformity with feudal law as it appears later, especially with the general prevalence of military tenure. The growth of knighthood is a subject on which the greatest obscurity prevails, and the most probable explanation of its existence in England, the theory that it is a translation into Norman forms of the feignage of Anglo-Saxon law, can only be stated as probable. Between the picture drawn in Domesday and the state of affairs which the charter of Henry I was designed to remedy, there is a difference which the short interval of time will not account for, and which testifies to the action of some skillful organizing hand, working with neither justice nor mercy, hardening and sharpening all lines and points to the perfecting of a strong government. It is unnecessary to recapitulate here all the points in which the Anglo-Saxon institutions were already approaching the feudal model. It may be assumed that the actual obligation of military service was much the same in both systems, and that even the amount of land which was bound to furnish a mounted warrior was the same, however the conformity may have been produced. The Harriet of English Earl, or Thane, was in close resemblance with the relief of the Norman Count or Knight. But however close the resemblance, something was now added that made the two identical. The change of the Harriet to the relief implies a suspension of ownership, and carries with it the custom of livery of Sasan. The Harriet was the payment of a debt from the dead man to his lord. His son succeeded him by a lodial right. The relief was paid by the heir before he could obtain his father's lands. Between the death of the father and livery of the Sasan to the son, the right of the overlord had entered. The ownership was to a certain extent resumed, and the succession of the heir took somewhat of the character of a new grant. The right of wardship also became in the same way a re-entry by the lord on the profits of the estate of the minor, instead of being, as before, a protection by the head of the kin of the indefeasible rights of the heir, which it was the duty of the whole community to maintain. There could be no doubt that the military tenure, the most prominent feature of historical feudalism, was itself introduced by the same gradual process, which we have assumed in the case of the feudal usages in general. We have no light on the point from any original grant made by the conqueror to a lay follower, but judging by the grants made to the churches, we cannot suppose it probable that such gifts were made on any expressed condition, or accepted with a distinct pledge to provide a certain contingent of knights for the king's service. The obligation of national defense was incumbent, as of old, on all landowners, and the customary service of one fully armed man for each five hides of land was probably the rate at which the newly endowed follower of the king would be expected to discharge his duty. The wording of the Domesday Survey does not imply that, in this respect, the new military service differed from the old. The land is marked out, not into knights' fees, but into hides, and the number of knights to be furnished by a particular feudatory would be ascertained by inquiring the number of hides that he held, without apportioning the particular acres that were to support the particular knight. It would undoubtedly be on the estates of the lay vassals that a more definite usage would be first adopted, and knights bound by feudal obligations to their lord receive a definite estate from them. Our earliest information, however, on this, as on most points of tenure, is derived from the notices of ecclesiastical practice. Lanfranc, we are told, turned the drengs, the rent-paying tenants of his archiepiscopal estates, into knights for the defense of the country. He enfiefed a certain number of knights who performed the military service due from the archiepiscopal barony. This had been done before the Domesday Survey, and almost necessarily implies that a like measure had been taken by the lay vassals. Lanfranc likewise maintained ten knights to answer for the military service due from the convent of Christchurch, which made over to him, in consideration of the relief, land worth two hundred pounds annually. The value of the knight's fee must have already been fixed at twenty pounds a year. 
End of section 1.